This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, Truth Dig Radio, Ralph Nader, and Democracy Now! And a quick note that since the Gaza conflict is ongoing, some of the numbers mentioned will be out of date. As of this recording, according to the New York Times, the conflict in Gaza has resulted in 1,023 Palestinian deaths and 51 Israeli deaths. I want to read part of a Facebook post that was posted by Yuval Diskin. He is the former head of Shin Bet, which is Israel's, I don't want to say FBI because it has actually, uh, I think, a broader um, a mandate, but it's almost uh, Israel's FBI, CIA, but internal. Yes, maybe closer to MI5. And he was the head of Shin Bet from uh, 2005 to 2011. There is some talk that he may run for office, but I don't think this in any way diminishes uh, what he is obviously willing to say publicly. Uh, I'm going to read part of it. It starts, Dear Friends, uh, don't be confused for a moment. This is the result of the policy conducted by the current government, whose essence is, let's frighten the public over everything that's happening around us in the Middle East. Let's prove that there's no Palestinian partner. Let's build more and more settlements and create a reality, a reality that cannot be changed. Let's continue not dealing with the severe problems of the Arab sector in Israel. Let's continue not solving the severe social gaps in Israeli society. This illusion worked wonderfully as long as the security establishment was able to provide impressive calm on the security front over the last few years as a result of the high-quality, dedicated work of the people of the Shin Bet, the IDF, and the Israel police, as well as the Palestinians, whose significant contribution to the relative calm in the West Bank should not be taken lightly. However, the rapid deterioration we're experiencing in the security situation did not come because of the vile murder of Naftali, Iyal, and Gilad. May their memories be blessed. The deterioration is first and foremost the result of the illusion that the government's inaction on every front can actually freeze the situation in place. The illusion that price tag is simply a few slogans on the wall and not pure racism. The illusion that everything can be solved with a little more force. The illusion that the Palestinians will accept everything that's done in the West Bank and won't respond despite the rage and frustration and the worsening economic situation. The illusion that the international community won't impose sanctions on us. That the Arab citizens of Israel won't take uh, to the streets at the end of the day because of the lack of care uh, for their problems and that the Israeli public will continue submissively to accept the government's helplessness in dealing with the social gaps that its policies have created and are worsening, while corruption continues to poison everything good, and so on and so on. Um, you know, I, I hope that the images of this 15-year-old boy from Florida who is of Palestinian descent <clears throat> getting beaten to a pulp by Isla Israeli police force uh, forces 
will, you know, change some of the uh, public opinion, particularly in the Jewish community in this country. Uh, for a long time, I've felt that Israel is uh, on a path to destroy itself. <clears throat> and uh, it, it's, you know, I mean, I think this captures, uh, this Diskin post captures the, well, the illusion that the at least a large percentage of Israelis seem to be operating under, which is that this status quo of continued repression of Palestinians can, can, is, is sustainable. It's not. And at one point, something's going to give. And if those people who support the existence of Israel uh, want the country... Uh, to remain intact, uh, I mean, it's time for the supporters of Israel, even, to to wake up to the reality of the situation on the ground and realize that it is an unjust system that is um, that is simply not sustainable. But don't you think the other really key factor is to let go of any type of delusion that there's any type of symmetry of power in this situation. Because I feel like the, the narrative that even says, you know, a pox on both houses, this is a cycle of violence, and of course, condemn Hamas, condemn these horrific killings that, you know, I don't, there's no evidence Hamas did, but I'm just saying generally condemn terrorism. Yeah, and it's sort of atypical. But the reality, of, right. oh, they didn't do it. Right. I think I mean, it's, it's atypical I think this was, yeah. to not take credit for something like they that. They didn't even take credit. They right. said, we didn't do it, but it was a great right. thing to do. They're, they're protecting their brand. It's right. disgusting, but that's what it is. But fundamentally, like, Israel is the power here. There's no dispute about it. They have the most powerful military in the region. They run unoccupied people's lives. And, you know, that's just the kind of fundamental, unavoidable fact. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, that it's... it's it's indisputable. I mean, that's also the, the, the argument that Diskin's making. This notion that you can drum up this fear, uh, that there's an existential threat to this country, uh, is, is long gone. That may have been the case 50, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, but it is, it is not the case today. And, and I would also say, that to the extent that there is th that not only is there a problem with people deluding themselves as to the parity of strength of 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 the Israelis and the Palestinians there is also a uh too much i think trying to win some type of moral argument about the founding of Israel or the, uh, the, the, the moral argument as to who was there first. I mean, if anything, there is a denial of the existence of the Palestinian people. Not if anything. I mean, there is, there is, exactly a, there is a denial is. of the existence of the Palestinian people having lived in what is now Israel, uh, in, you know, prior to 1948. There, you know, it is well established that there was a, there was a, a society there, a culture there, uh, 
Um, and, but, but nevertheless, for those people who cannot get past, and I think it's, you know, on the Israeli supporter side, um, the 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 idea of of talking about Yasser Arafat at this point, I mean, all uh, you know, that's the, the, I've had these conversations with people, and I consider myself at least in in the sense that I think Israel should succeed, exist as a supporter of Israel in that regard. But for those people who who consider themselves um, Zionists or supporters of Israel's right to exist, you've got to wake up to the reality that if you really do want Israel to be around in 50 years, um, you better acknowledge what's going on on the ground and realize that this is unsustainable and um, that the future is not on your side. Fighting in the Gaza Strip, of course, and both sides are blaming one another. Uh, let's give you the latest numbers. Uh, 175 Palestinians have been killed so far since Tuesday. Uh, over 1,060 wounded. And the number of uh, Israelis killed is zero. And so, of course, I'm told that that is even-handed and the same uh, for everybody. But no, it's okay because the... Palestinians are the terrorists, and they, they kill civilians. That's why it makes a big difference. In fact, you know what? Let's go to Prime Minister Netanyahu. He's going to educate us on all this, and then I'll come back and give you the real numbers on civilian dead. Uh, let's go to uh, first clip here. We can't uh, enable our population to be under uh, continuous rocket fire. I mean, I, I just want your, uh, your viewers to imagine the United States being bombarded uh, not in one city or uh, two cities, but in every city between uh, New York and Colorado. Uh, maybe 20% of the United States would be exempt from this. 80% of your citizens would have to be in bomb shelters or ready to go into bomb shelters within a minute to a minute and a half max. Uh, you can't, no country can accept that. We can't accept that. And we'll take the necessary action to stop it. There seems to be very little disagreement about that here in this country, uh, Mr. Prime Minister. Well, that part is true, unfortunately. Uh, now, uh, Netanyahu says no country can accept that. Imagine if you had to worry about rockets for 80% of your country. New York to Colorado. All right, well, let's flip it. Imagine if 80% of your country, or maybe 100% of your country, was occupied. Can any country accept that? Would Texas accept that? Would Colorado accept that? Would Rhode Island accept? Would Florida accept? Would Mississippi and Alabama would they accept that? Would they? Would South Carolina, North Carolina, all those states in between, Pennsylvania, you name it, would they all bow their heads and say, "Well, we're under an occupation. Obviously, we're not allowed to fight back," and so we bow our heads. We bow our heads. You would. I mean, of course, right? So why don't we just go occupy Texas right now? Because that's perfectly acceptable. 
the occupied territories have been occupied for 47 years. No, no, but that's acceptable. Okay. So, but Prime Minister Netanyahu is going to uh, continue and tell you the difference between the Israelis and the Palestinians. They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. Let's People, I think, are, are wondering whether you're near the beginning of this offensive or near the end of it. Can you give us an assessment of that? Well, whether we're at the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning, uh, I'm not going to tell you that right now because we face a very, very brutal terrorist enemy. I mean, the, you know, here's the difference between us. We're using missile defense to protect our civilians and they're using their civilians to protect their missiles. That's basically the difference. No, oh, that's the difference. They yeah, use civilians to protect their missiles, yeah. Uh, see, they target civilians, whereas Israel kills a lot of civilians by accident. 77% of the Palestinians killed in these round of attacks were civilians. That seems to be a high error rate. Uh, now, we've had 1,300 Israeli airstrikes. We've also had 1,000 Palestinian rockets. I'm going to show you the difference in the rockets in the pictures in a second, okay? Um, so both sides firing rockets. One side's rockets are clearly more lethal than the other and more accurate, etc. Now, do, you th do I think that Hamas should be firing rockets? Absolutely not. It's a terrible idea. It's a bad idea morally, ethically, and politically. Hey, look, are you willing to die for your cause? Gandhi was willing to die for his cause. Mandela was willing to die for his cause. King was, okay? But these guys had an effective strategy. They didn't punch. It doesn't take courage to, to throw a punch. It takes courage to take a punch. So I believe the Palestinians should go in that direction. But meanwhile, when the Israelis say, what, us kill c civilians? Golly gee, oh, oh did 77% of our bombs land on top of civilian heads? Well, that was just a mistake. They intended it. We didn't intend it. My God, you must be the most inefficient, incompetent, administration in world history that 77 percent of the time you just wind up hitting people you didn't want to hit at all maybe your technology isn't that good they say that the uh, palestinians are hiding behind uh, their civilians they're firing rockets from the gaza strip so let's think this through for a second because this is one of the dumbest talking points and it's said over and over on american television and everybody accepts it as gospel what so israel believes that Hamas, who I don't think should be firing rockets, if they're going to fire rockets, should go in the middle of the desert and go, here I am, Israel, here I am. I'm going to fire this rocket here from the open area, okay? All right, here we go. I fired it. Yeah, that would make it easier for Israel to get them. All right. Gaza is one of the most densely populated places in the world. And yes, those idiots who are firing the rockets are going to fire from where they are. They're in the middle of the city. And they're not going to go get bombed in the middle of the open area. And you shouldn't be firing them in the first place. But of course they're going to fire from there. And yes, they endanger their own civilians. And yes, I can't stand that. But it doesn't give you a justification to kill hundreds of Palestinians in what is collective punishment. Okay. Uh, to give you a sense of that, the Associated Press reports, Israeli airstrikes pounded targets in Gaza with one hitting a center for the disabled and killing two patients and wounding four people. Of course, all Palestinians. In a second attack on Saturday night, an Israeli warplane flattened the home of a Gaza police chief, Taisir al-Bash, and damaged a nearby mosque as evening prayers ended, killing at least 18 people and wounding 50, officials said. Now, just flip it every time. If you think you're fair and 
and you're not looking at this from a biased perspective, just flip it and see if you're comfortable with it. Hamas fired a rocket and killed an Israeli police chief and bombed a temple and killed 18 people inside. Now, how much would you be screaming, bloody terrorists, terrorists? Israel does it well. I mean, come on. They, what, what, they had these rockets getting fired at them. At some point, after a bunch of hostilities and a 47-year occupation, they had to go flatten everything in the area. And if 18 people die in civilian areas, in that case, and 175 people overall, 77% of them civilians, hey, man, collateral damage. We're trying our best here. You know what would be trying your best? Ending the occupation. That would be trying your best. Critics say Israel's heavy bombardment of one of the most densely populated territories in the world is itself the main factor putting civilians at risk. Sarit Mikhaili of the Israeli human rights group B'Salam said that while using human shields violates international humanitarian law, this does not give Israel the excuse to violate international humanitarian law as well. So, now let's take a look at those rockets. So, here are the Israeli rockets uh, that are being fired. Um, they are significant, and that's what they're fired from. Seems like they've got some pretty good technology uh, bought by the from the United States of America, and oftentimes is given by the United States of America. They've got helicopters that fire missiles. They've got jets that fire missiles. They've got significant missiles left and right. Now let's take a look at the Qassam rockets that Hamas uses. They're real. They're rockets, and if they land on you, uh, obviously uh, you could die. And some have died in different hostilities, not in this one. And look at that. That uh, obviously looks scary, and you see them being fired. But they are far, far smaller. They're very in inaccurate. Thank God for that. And uh, and now they're also being knocked out of the sky by Iron Dome, which is great. I'm glad that they have Iron Dome in Israel to protect the civilians. It'd be nice if Palestine also had an Iron Dome, which of course would be considered unacceptable. We must only protect the civilians on one side. But uh, let's show you some damage. Look, the Qassam rockets caused damage too. That's in Israel. You see that? If it lands right on the car, obviously that blew up the car there, and then we've got more damage. And so this is not insignificant. You don't want, you wouldn't want to live in an area where uh, these rockets might land on you. Netanyahu's right about that, right? So we got some damage here on Israel. One more. So uh, they don't often land on houses or buildings or people or cars, but when they do, obviously they could do damage, and you'd be scared of it too. Now let me show you the what happens when Israeli missiles land in the Gaza Strip. That damage seems to be a little bit uh, more significant. It doesn't just take out a part of a building or a part of a car; it takes out half a city block. Okay, those are good old made in the USA missiles. Uh, when they land on you. Well, not only are you dead, but probably your family is and uh, several neighbors nearby and maybe half your city block. And this goes on and on and on because these missiles are fairly accurate and uh, they, unlike the Kassam rockets, land exactly where they're intended to land, which is right in the middle of your neighborhood. Okay, so more updates. Since these uh, rockets are being fired in the Gaza Strip and they're killing all these folks, of course, people are running to shelters. In fact, 17,000 people from northern Gaza have sought refuge in UN shelters. <laughs> Jamal al-Attar, who's one of the people who took his family in the middle of the night, literally in midnight, ran from the buildings they were afraid were going to get bombed, uh, went to the UN shelter, says, we complain to God first and then the United Nations second. 
I would flip that order and uh, for the people who don't like the United Nations, well, thank God the United Nations is at least there to provide some sort of shelter. That shelter doesn't always work, as we've seen in previous altercations uh, in the occupied territories, but at least they're there to protect some people now. In fact, they've converted their schools. They take out all the chairs, as you'll see in this picture, uh, from the classrooms and use the classrooms as shelter for the refugees. Um Muhammad Sultan says, my son was so scared, his young son, he covers his ears and yells whenever there are bombings. My daughter shakes. You know, I got young kids, and kids being what they are, they're scared of monsters in the night. But I assure them every night, don't worry, there are no monsters. We live in Los Angeles. There's bears not going to get you. There's no snakes or lions or any of that. Don't worry. If you live in the Gaza Strip, what are you going to tell your kids? You're going to tell them not to worry? No, you're going to tell them to run in the middle of the night. Because there are things that go bump in the night. And sometimes they land in your house and kill your entire family. Violence is wrong. It's wrong on all sides. As violence continues in Israel, in Gaza, in the conflicted territories, we have children and families in fear all over the region. And we, uh, I seem to be getting into arguments with both left and right wingers. The left wingers saying I'm too pro-Israel. The right wingers saying I'm too anti-Israel. And I, I don't think there's ever going to be agreement between me and either side of this argument. But I think we have to keep talking about it, and I have some more thoughts today. Um, we have terrorist rockets fired with the intent to kill civilians in Israel coming by the hundreds and thousands. There are bombing runs by Israel meant to take out where the rockets are coming from and Hamas and other terrorist leaders uh, going astray and killing civilians and killing innocent children. This is absolutely horrible. We have Palestinian terrorists launching rockets from schools and other populated areas knowing that when Israel retaliates, they will be able to use those deaths, those tragic deaths, those deaths that are absolutely disgraceful, uh, to their PR advantage, to further recruiting and further hatred of Jews, will, which will, of course, further ingrain in the religious extremist elements on the Israeli side that they need to continue the bombing. This vicious cycle does not seem to be going in a direction where we will see a true change anytime soon. Now, as viewers of this program know, I condemn the mission of Hamas to destroy Israel. I condemn their total disregard for the lives of the children and families that they endanger among their own people to continue to launch the hundreds and thousands of rockets intended to kill civilians. But I'm also condemning the strategy of Israel, which is in part led by these religious extremist elements 
which are a minority in Israel, of maintaining the status quo of retaliation that is clearly not working, that regardless of why it is that the rockets are being fired from areas where there are civilians and children, they are killing civilians and children, and that is simply not going to lead to any kind of broader solution. I'm heartbroken over the families from Gaza who have innocent children dying, who have innocent relatives dying. It is absolutely horrible. And I also, of course, condemn the rockets from Gaza, which are not resistance according to international law, as they are deliberately sent to try to kill Israeli civilians. I condemn the racism in Israel and the calls for vengeance and incitement that are too common in Israel. And by the way, among the extremist Israeli politicians as well. I condemn that. This really has to end. There will be no peace if Hamas continues in power, which, by the way, the survey we looked at last week showed most Palestinians don't want Hamas in power. If Hamas continues in power with their strategy, with their goal, ultimate goal of eliminating Israel, there will never be peace. At the same time, there will never be peace if Israel does not stop the settlements. Do not release prisoners that have been correctly convicted. Don't do that, but stop the settlements. And the extremist religious elements in Israel, in the Knesset, refuse to do that. And that also is not a winning strategy. Israel has to stop that, Lewis, and Israel has to remove the religious elements that are unfortunately, because of the way the multi-party system works, influencing policy there. Yeah, both sides, David, need to remove the religious elements. And I would say good luck with that. There are just too many factors at play here for this to end uh, quickly or or easily or peacefully. I mean, uh, this has been going on for how long? Unfortunately, I think this is going to continue for quite a while. I don't see any end in sight, unfortunately, because of all these factors. Now, what I've just said will still probably lead to some people calling me anti-Palestinian. What I'm about to say will definitely lead to many people calling me anti-Israeli. And my point is this, even if you, like me, agree that Israel, like any other country, has a right to defend itself, as any country would if they were on the receiving end of hundreds or thousands of rockets as they are, even if you agree, as I do, that Hamas does bear significant blame for their position as a systemic impediment to peace, and that the Palestinian deaths are happening in part because of how the Hamas rockets are being launched towards Israel, to justify the continued policy with anywhere from 25 to 75 percent of the Palestinian deaths being innocent civilians and children, you have to believe that it's going to lead to something productive, that it is going to get you closer to peace. And we know that that's not the case. So how do you justify a policy that is pragmatically ineffective and is leading to the deaths of many innocent civilians and children, even if they do want to see Israel destroyed. How do you support that, Lewis? Uh, yeah, that's a, a good question to ask. Uh, unfortunately, this is uh, just a total quagmire, David, and uh, there's no easy way out. We've been saying for years what needs to change on the Palestinian side, but Israel's policy also needs to change. The religious extremists need to be out of power, and the settlements absolutely need to stop. Uh, and the rockets from Hamas and, and other groups in uh, the territories absolutely need to stop. The policy of saying we won't stop until Israel does not exist, 
None of those ideas are going to get us any closer to any kind of peace agreement there, and and we'll continue to follow it and see what happens. We'll see if President Obama's involvement as maybe a broker of ceasefire or peace has any impact. Uh, I I don't know. we have been told and and given examples of uh, real anti-Semitism that does exist in uh, in Israel's neighbors. It's, it's true. Okay, there there is there there are Holocaust denial. There is anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. There are blanket statements about Jewish people. It's absolutely true. But what we're also starting to see as it started to become covered by people like Max Blumenthal. That was the point of Goliath, was let's get real about what's happening in Israeli society. And there is a profound racism and a profound coarsening that how could there not be with an occupation of 40 years? How could there not be with a siege on Gaza? The only way these policies are acceptable is if you accept on some fundamental level that Palestinians are subhuman. And we're starting to see it in social media. So David Sheen, who's an Israeli journalist, um, uh, did a search uh, 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 of, of basically the term Arab um, the, uh, in, 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 on, on, by Israeli Twitter users. And what he came across is young, a lot of women actually, young Israeli women uh, posting selfies uh, in you know, and 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 uh, sort of you know, self glamour shots, and they would do these shots, and then they would have uh, in the text next to the picture, they would write things like, "This is," these are a couple examples, hashtag Zion stand up for Israeli, and then she tweets, "Arabs may Arabs may you be paralyzed and die with great suffering." That's one example. Give you another example. This is another example of a tweet and a picture. Selfie ethnic cleansing. Hating Arabs isn't racism. It's a commandment from God. There's another one. I wish painful death to Arabs. Kill Arab children so there won't be a next generation. Kill them already. Arabs are whores. And it goes on and on and on. Now, look, you can criticize and say it's a selective quoting. And sure, you can go and find, go across any type of social media and find deplorable and disgusting comments. But the point is, is that the narrative of the only democracy in the Middle East surrounded by hate is not accurate. You're talking about, yes, it is an ethnically based state. It's a state that's presided over an occupation and a siege. And there is a coarsening and a drift to the very far right that has proceeded across Israeli society. And these tweets reflect it in the way that 
pop culture reflexes reflect things in the way that after September 11th, it wasn't just people on the far right that said we should drop a nuke on Afghanistan. A lot of people said it. I'm a Howard Stern fan. He said that as a, as a, you know, a relatively apolitical, I mean, guy with political opinions, but not, not a liberal, but not a man of the right either. And this coarsening is deep. And we have enabled it by supporting everything and never holding them to account. And that's the situation. That's the reality. This is Truth League Radio, and we are joined by Juan Cole, who's uh, informing us with his comment uh, about the situation in Gaza between Israel and Hamas and, and the wider picture. Uh, I want to ask you, because this is something that comes up as we cover this issue, um, you know, we, we frequently point out, as I'm sure you're aware, that on the one side you have many, many casualties of Palestinians um, at the hands of the Israeli Defense Forces, and, and most of those seem to be civilian casualties. And on the other hand, we've had no fatalities so far from the, you know, hundreds and, and, and more rockets, a thousand, I think, plus rockets fired into Israel from Gaza. Um, and in pointing that out, some critics say that, you know, well, we're not really capturing how absolutely terrifying it is in Israel to have these hundreds of rockets flying over the border and now deeper than they've ever gone before and targeting civilian populations in, in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem. Um, so is that fair? You know, I, I, I take your point, and I think uh, it is, uh, you know, certainly the case that uh, these rockets which come out of Gaza are, uh, uh, you know, terrorizing people in Sidorot and Beersheba and so forth. And, and it is, you know, a Human Rights Watch uh, has pointed out that this is a war crime because those rockets have no guidance uh, systems. So uh, if Hamas imagines itself, and Islamic Jihad uh, also sends out some rockets, if they imagine themselves as conducting a resistance to the Israeli military occupation, then quite frankly, in, 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 uh, in international law, a case could be made uh, for them hitting uh, Israeli military targets. But just to send random rockets out arbitrarily onto civilian populations, uh, it is illegal. I mean, it's a war crime. They could be, uh, if, if they could be gotten a hold of and taken to the Hague before the International Criminal Court, this would certainly be a conviction. Uh, so it's wrong what they're doing, uh, and illegal. And, uh, but on the other hand, let us remember that, uh, people in Sederot and, and Beersheba are living on the farms and in the houses of the people who live in Gaza that in 1948 and to some extent uh, again in, in 1967, refugees were created uh, and, and property was exchanged with no compensation. Uh, over 70% of the population now in the Gaza Strip are refugees from southern Israel. 40% of them still live in wretched refugee camps. And 
And in addition to which, since 2007, Israel has put a blockade on the civilian population of, of Gaza, uh, which prevents them from exporting most of what they make and has plunged them into dire poverty and uh, even food insecurity. Uh, and so while the rockets coming out are illegal and there's no excuse for them, on the other hand, uh, the, the situation that Israel has put the people of Gaza in is impossible, and, and it is also a war crime. It, it's, a, it's a violation of Israeli obligations to the Geneva Convention of 1949 on the treatment of occupied populations, and the Israeli leadership, if they could be gotten a hold of, could be taken to The Hague and, and tried on these crimes. One of the things that's so difficult to understand is what anyone wants out of this. And as you said, Netanyahu may want a more um, amenable government in, in hum, instead of Hamas. But, um, you know, you have this crisis that's really exploded um, out of control. And Netanyahu said something recently, I think, where uh, I'm reading from a translation, but he said something like, um, Israelis are coming around to his way of thinking that he would never give up um, security control of, of Gaza to any kind of sovereign Palestinian state. So it seems that Netanyahu really doesn't believe in, a, in any kind of two-state solution. And I look at this map that you posted on your blog that's really quite incredible, showing the territory of the Palestinians just dwindling and dwindling over the years to um, really just a... Um, a shred of what it once was. What is the ultimate? Is there a long-term view here, or is this just short-term, you know, tactics? Well, the Israeli leadership and the right-wing Zionist intellectual class just seems to me to be out of touch with reality. They live in some kind of fantasy land where people, millions of people, can be made to disappear by you know clicking your heels and wishing it, and uh, they have no obvious plan. So the, the 2.6 million or so Palestinians in the West Bank, uh, the 1.7 million Palestinians uh, in Gaza are stateless. They are without the rights that accrue to someone who has a nationality and a state. Uh, their property is insecure. They don't really own anything that they think they own. They don't have control over their water, their land, their air. Uh, and uh, in the case of Gaza, they're even prevented from uh, having any export markets for things that they make. Uh, they're in a kind of open-air prison. And I don't think it's too, too much to say uh, that they're in a kind of concentration camp. And uh, Mr. Netanyahu seems to believe that he can just keep them like that forever. And, and this is impossible. Uh, and, of, of course, these serial... Uh, military engagements that he uh, initiates against Gaza will just continue forever under these circumstances. And uh, I think, ultimately, uh, the, the international uh, community will begin sanctioning Israel over this behavior. And I, I don't think, in fact, that it's plausible that 20 years from now we will still be talking about these issues in the same way and, and Israel would have this kind of impunity. It should be said also that these people in the Palestinians living in Gaza, you know, it's not as if they're all members of Hamas. They are, um, I believe there was a, one of the mothers the, of one of the children who was killed, um, you know, witnessed by all these reporters. These children were all, up, I guess, sort of playing on a roof and, and killed by an Israeli missile. And I, I'm told one of the mothers said something like, you know, Hamas has killed my family, too. Well, first of all, half of the people who live in Gaza are children. 
Uh, so I don't think they regularly vote uh, that they would be uh, supporters of a political party. Uh, and they are under siege along with everybody else. And in fact, the Israeli military uh, actually sat down in a room in, in, uh, a few years ago and figured out how many calories each individual in Gaza needed not to starve to death, but not to put on any weight. And they wouldn't let more food in uh, than that. And they also had a list of things that weren't allowed in, including chocolate for children. Uh, so, and, and one, one Israeli spokesman said they were going to put the, the, the people of Gaza on a diet. Uh, well, I mean, that's about the creepiest thing I've heard. Yeah, really. Supposed democracy in my lifetime. And, and, uh, so, uh, you know, the, there's no longer a, 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 a food blockade, but, uh, essential building materials, you know, rebuilding all of these, uh, thousands of buildings that have been damaged in, in the aerial bombardments. Uh, is going to be almost impossible because the Israelis won't let in the, the, the building materials. Uh, they say, well, it's dual use. It could be used to make weapons. Uh, so it's, uh, it, it really is, you know, it just reminds me of, uh, of that horrible scene in the, in the film Pulp, uh, Pulp Fiction where there's this gimp, this, this mm -hmm. character who's kept in a basement and obviously abused and, uh, uh, the, the, the people in Gaza are kind of in that kind of situation. And, you know, calling the militants or, or blaming them for having, the, the adults among them, for having voted for Hamas in 2006 when it was allowed to run by the uh, Bush administration as a political party, uh, that doesn't excuse this just absolutely unacceptable humanitarian situation, which is ongoing. You know, this, this Israeli incursion will end and the aerial bombardments will end, uh, and uh, likely, uh, I think, Hamas won't, in fact, be dislodged, and the Israelis will go back to doing whatever they were doing before, and the Gaza, people of Gaza will still be there under this blockade, and, uh, and, and they're going to go on living their lives, you know, with insufficient medicine. Uh, if somebody needs a special operation, they have to get permission from the Israeli government to send the person to a hospital outside of Gaza, some people have died waiting for the permission. You know, it's not a way to live. And, and the fact that the United States is actively complicit in keeping the people of Gaza in this uh, basement of humanity is, is shameful. It's important to have a little history here. Israel was created by the United Nations with the U.S. support, 1948, and it had about, I would say, 35% of the Palestine area under the British Palestine mandate. There was, hostilities broke out with surrounding countries. It was all a very complex mess of competing battles between Arab soldiers and then Arabs and Israelis. 
And the net was that Israel doubled its size. They took the Negev area, which doubles its size, and the refugees, the Palestinian refugees, were driven into this little Gaza Strip, a desert area, bordering mostly on Israel, a little bit on Egypt. And it's only twice the size of the District of Columbia, and now it has 1.8 million people. Very congested, uh, very poor. It's part of the Palestinian National Authority, but it's governed by the elected regime that they call Hamas, which is in competition with the West Bank Fatah section of the Palestinian National Authority. So that's the backdrop. Israel, on and off, occupied Gaza. It had a very prosperous colonials there, getting most of the good land and the water, living a good life. And Ariel Sharon pulled out about 10 years or so ago. And then the trouble started because they just pulled out the colonials, but there was a tremendous encirclement of Gaza. And here's the situation. Israel knows every alley, every street in Gaza. They know the names of all the families, all Gazans who give birth. The baby is registered with the Israeli authorities. They know who's driving in what vehicle. They have 24-hour drones. They have satellite. They have infrared on this little strip. They know what the connections are between the factions. And most interesting, they've even gone to the level of DNA samples from various extended Gaza families. And, of course, in their periodic invasions, they learned even more. And they have a lot of spies and informants because there are a lot of Palestinians in Israeli jails that have been kept there without charges. And they use them as leverage uh, to get informants and uh, spies inside Gaza. Uh, Israel's the fourth largest military power in the world. It's consistently violating several UN resolutions, which means that you don't stay in conquered territory, you pull back. The blockade and the siege of uh, medicine, food, drinking water, electricity, and even the customs revenues are completely controlled by the Israelis, and they let enough in so that the whole place doesn't starve or get no medical care whatsoever. What most people don't know is that Hamas is in constant communication with the Israeli authorities over all these details, the imports, what can be, what can't be. Even when they're fighting, they're in communication. And the answer as to why is quite simple, that this is all about internal politics in Israel and internal politics in the Palestinian regions. Hamas has to show some resistance, otherwise it will be challenged by splinter groups that talk a tougher game. And Hamas becomes more popular when there's some modest resistance, and it is very modest. There have been over a thousand dud rockets fired, one fatality. These rockets are composed in garages. They are extremely crude they are, fortunately for the Israelis and the Palestinians, very inaccurate. Three of them actually fell back onto Gazan land. Most of them just fall on the desert floor. And the ones that Israel targets for testing the weapon of their Iron Dome, 90% of them are shot down in air. And so in Israel, similar political factions operate. Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, presides over a very fractious coalition, which has some incredibly racist and extremist parties, and I'll cite one shortly, and he has to talk tough. So there's almost like a, a lethal kabuki dance going on. The Israelis could wipe out Gaza in a day, 
without even using their 200 atomic bombs. And Hamas, weak as it is, is not using some of its more accurate recent rockets because if they ever hit an Israeli drone or an Israeli F-16 or an Israeli building, they know they will return to the 400 to 1 ratio of civilian deaths and injuries. That's the ratio, 400 to 1, 400 more Palestinian deaths and injuries to one Israeli. This is why the New York Times called it a very, quote, lopsided battle. So now Israel, for whatever reason, is entered into a ground invasion, which is not right into Gaza City, and they're trying to close all the smuggling tunnels from under the border in Israel and Egypt, because a lot of the goods, including weapons, uh, a lot of the essential goods to live also came through these tunnels. So it's a completely encircled open-air prison. You can't leave. You can't go into Gaza without Israeli permission. And the situation, unfortunately, is not being viewed in terms of a two-state solution, which all observers, really, unless the total extremists, say you got to have a two-state solution where Palestine establishes independent, viable state. You know, Obama was for that. George W. Bush was for that. UN is for that. Our allies are for that. And Israel remains in the 78% of Palestine, original Palestine, as a secure, obviously, independent state. Now, it turns out a majority of Palestinians and Israelis, when the missiles aren't flying, support a two-state solution, a majority to begin with. But the leadership of Israel has been taken over by the militarists, just like our government when they invaded Iraq and blew apart Afghanistan was run by the militarists, and so nothing is heard but the fighting. Now, there's a huge humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Uh, 95% of the water cannot be drunk without serious internal diseases. Uh, the aquifer, the only aquifer under the desert floor, will be exhausted, according to the UN, in 2016. 270 Palestinians have been killed in this latest hostility, 2,000 injured thousand homes destroyed. The Israeli pinpoint missiles have somehow found their way to schools, hospitals, clinics, electric facilities, drinking water facilities, you name it. Civilian targets, they say, well, that's because Hamas hides behind civilian targets. There's no place to hide in Gaza when the Israelis tell people to leave their homes. There's nowhere to go. There are no shelters. There's nowhere to go, period. And they've been hit by missiles in the open air on the ground. So it's not like they think if they get out of the building before it's blown up, they're going to be safe. So that's the scene. It's a humanitarian crisis. Obama and the Congress are shutting their mouth. They've taken the APAC oath. Obama is sending humanitarian aid in defiance of the Syrian dictatorship to the Syrian people, but he's not sending humanitarian aid to the Palestinian people. What's the difference? Well, Syria is an adversary, and Israel is an ally, and is our responsibility. From 1948, we have sent tens and tens of billions of dollars of military aid and of economic aid to Israel. We give them diplomatic cover and automatic veto at the U.N., uh, and we're responsible when you have this kind of crushing civilian casualties, and we should be restraining Israel, but we're not. So that is really the thrust of, of my column today, which is on uh, Nader.org for anybody who wants to read it. Now, the argument always is, who started it? Uh, you know, they started it, the other guys started it. The point is that consistently, 
the superpower that is Israel that dominates the Palestinians, they're always invading into the West Bank. They're uh, killing people. They're moving into Gaza. They're infiltrating. I mean, it isn't even close in terms of who the provocation, uh, the provocateurs are. So let's go back to a very candid statement by the founder of modern Israel, David Ben-Gurion. And in his interview, he was asked why the Palestinians were still resisting. This was probably over 30 years ago. And he summed up Palestinian grievances with his usual candor. And these were his exact words. They, the Palestinians, quote, they see but one thing. We have come and we have stolen their country. Why would they accept that? End quote. And no one has said it more eloquently than 1,500 Israeli reservists and combat officers who belong to the Israeli Defense Forces, when they signed a pledge saying they'd defend Israel proper, but they no longer, here's the pledge, think of how courageous this is, quote, we shall not continue to fight beyond the 1967 borders, meaning the Palestinian territories, in order to dominate, expel, starve, and humiliate an entire people, end quote. And no one has better framed the challenge to Israeli politicians than several former retired heads of the Israeli FBI or the Israeli CIA. And these are public statements. Some of them were press conferences. Some of them were part of this wonderful Israeli documentary, The Gatekeepers. They publicly stated, why is Israel as a supreme power not moving to a two-state solution already supported by a majority of both the Israeli and Palestinian people? So that's it. In summary, we don't see this kind of news. That's why you have to have Pacifica and Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! It's an incredible blackout of what's going on in favor of the Israeli propaganda machine and their powerful Capitol Hill lobby, APAC. We're now joined by Israeli journalist Gideon Levy in Tel Aviv in a piece for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz headlined, What Does Hamas Really Want? Uh, Levy writes, quote, These conditions are civilian. The means of achieving them are military, violent, and criminal. But the bitter truth is that when Gaza is not firing rockets at Israel, nobody cares about it. Read the list of Hamas demands and judge honestly whether there's one unjust demand among them. Gideon Levy, welcome to Democracy Now! Um, Why don't you lay out the premise of this piece, what you're trying to convey in your article in Haaretz? Look, we uh, tend to uh, beat our enemies and never to listen to them. And many times, listening even to the enemy, even to the most bitter enemy, can serve much a better cause than beating and beating and beating. And unfortunately, Israel is just using the uh, violence right now without listening to their uh, conditions. I don't know if their conditions are 
acceptable. I don't know if those are really their conditions, but they say it very clearly. They ask for freedom for Gaza. They ask to lift the siege. Can you recall a more just required than this? But I'll say something more than this. Doesn't it serve the interests of Israel seeing Gaza free and seeing Gaza building its economy and not living in those unhuman conditions in the biggest cage in the world, which creates only more hatred and more violence? So it is really at our door now to decide, do we want to go from one cycle to the other, from one circle of bloodshed to the other, not solving anything, or are we willing once and for all to put a real just solution to the problem of Gaza? Well, with the massive civilian toll in Gaza, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was asked Monday if he's worried about losing international opinion. Uh, Netanyahu was speaking to Brian Williams of NBC, NBC News. You know, at a certain point, you say, what choice have you got? What would you do? What would you do if American cities, where you're sitting now, Brian, would be rocketed, would absorb hundreds of rockets? Uh, you, know, you know what would you, you'd say? You'd say to your leader, a man's got to do what a man's got to do, and you'd say a country's got to do what a country's got to do. We have to defend ourselves. We try to do it with the minimum uh, amount of uh, force or uh, with targeting uh, military uh, targets as best as we can, but we'll act to defend ourselves. No country can live like this. That's Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu speaking on Monday. Gideon Levy, um, so he's saying here that this current attack is about self-defense, and the blockade has been justified in terms of, well, we have to stop Hamas from smuggling rockets. They are, after all, a group that's committed to our destruction. Your response to that? So did you stop the smuggling with the siege? Did you really stop? We see now how well equipped Hamas is. This is ridiculous because any siege can be broken for certain purposes, but the siege breaks the people of Gaza and pushes them again and again to the corner, to the corner of violence and to the corner of desperation. But I would like also to comment about uh, the Prime Minister's remarks as if uh, Israel has to react. Sure, Israel has to react and has to defend itself. But, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, where did it start? Those, those rockets fall on our heads just by chance. There is no context to this. There was not the breaking of the political negotiations by the Israelis refusing to release some few veteran prisoners. There was not a war declared on Hamas in the West Bank after the kidnap and the murder of three Israeli youngsters, arresting 500 Hamas activists who were not involved in this kidnap. Didn't Israel stop the salaries, transferring the salaries to 40,000 Hamas workers, employees in Gaza? And what did Israel think? Wasn't Israel against the unity government? And what did Israel think? That all this will pass like nothing and Hamas will accept everything. So I have news. Those who believe that nothing will happen were either extremely arrogant or blind or both. Can you explain, Gideon Levy, um, the feeling of Israelis, you're in Tel Aviv, we're about to be joined by a guest in Jerusalem, of the 
rocket fire that's coming from Gaza, uh, the something like 2,000 rockets. Look, I don't want to underestimate. It is certain fear, for sure, more in the south, close to the Gaza Strip. This morning there were, were two sirens in Tel Aviv, and five minutes later life went back to its uh, uh, routine. I don't say that people don't carry some kind of fear, but by and large, the life, at least in the center, I've been yesterday to the south, the picture is different there, by and large, the life is more or less continuing with some uh, um, changes, uh, people go out less, but it's not the big fear of the horrible days of the Second Intifada with the exploding buses and suicide bombers. I, I don't even hint to say that this can become a routine. No way, it can't. But compared to the suffer of Gaza, this is really a children's game right now. And thanks God also, there are almost no civilian casualties in Israel. Having said this, I don't call for more casualties in Israel. I just say, let's try and solve it once and for all and not go again to the old games, which had proven already that they lead to nowhere. So in the Israeli-Palestinian issue, um, of course, both sides blame each other, and unfortunately, there's a lot of hate to go around. And this story is not about who you should hate, who are, who's wrong, who's evil, uh, which side is more culpable. Now, uh, yesterday I did a segment on what Israel should do. Now I want to talk to the Palestinians. So I have said uh, in every single instance that we've discussed this, that the violence on the side of Hamas, firing rockets... Uh, killing civilians is wrong, it's immoral, but also it's stupid and counterproductive. You're never going to outgun the Israelis. I mean, how ridiculous an idea is that? Besides which, it's not the right way to win, and, and it's not the moral way to win. You, you have the moral high ground because you've been occupied for 47 years. I'm talking to Palestinians now, right? Uh, but when Hamas goes in there and does violence, they destroy your moral high ground. Now, you think it doesn't matter, but God... How many times throughout history have people been told, oh, trying to win a battle with just having the moral high ground? It's not practical. It's not realistic. They told Gandhi that. They told Nelson Mandela that. And they told Martin Luther King that. And I want to give you his answer because I think uh, it's the best answer there is for what you can do. Now, again, whether you agree or don't agree that... Uh, Palestinians are the victims in this case, or their right to hate the Israelis, the ones that do, that do. Certainly there are a lot of people in that occupied territories who do have those feelings. And that's what Dr. King addresses here, of course, in his own context at the time. He said, there's another reason why you should love your enemies, 
and that is because hate distorts the personality of the hater. We usually think of what hate does for the individual hated, or the individuals hated, or the groups hated. But it is even more tragic. It is even more ruinous and injurious to the individual who hates. Went on to say, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And he was giving a whole speech on why not to hate, why to love even your oppressors, people you believe are your oppressors. He said a third reason why we should love our enemies is that love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. It is, by its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. Now, re I remind you here that Martin Luther King Jr. did not lose. He won. We got the Civil Rights Act largely because of the movement that Martin Luther King was a part of and led. This is not some happy-go-lucky talk about love versus hate, darkness versus light. This is talk that worked. Now, as you see in the date there, that was in 1957. It took a long time to win. He didn't at least get that piece of legislation until seven years later. But every time he was met by hate and oppression, he returned it with kindness and love. It is so bold, it's so foresightful, it's so smart, as well as moral, that it, I, I can't believe somebody is this good. I, I'm certainly nowhere near this good. I get angry. And I want to strike out, right? I wouldn't have had anywhere near this kind of vision. Let me finish it for you. He also said, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. I can't add anything to that. That was not only the most moral thing to do, it was also the best strategy there was. If you're a Palestinian, you're never going to outgun the Israelis. You're never going to outweaponize them. You're never going to outfight them. But you can take the moral high ground. And for example, and this is hard and it is dangerous, you can continue to walk into settlements. What will they do? They're not going to let you walk into settlements, even though it's in the West Bank. It's in occupied territory. They will arrest you. They will beat you. And people will see it the world over. And some of you will get killed. Easy for me to say here. It takes tremendous courage to do it. But you keep walking into settlements, not with any force, not even with rocks. You never raise your hand in anger, okay? 
And if you're in the Gaza Strip, keep walk, trying to walk across the border. They're not going to let you do it, I know. So do it day in, day out. If the entire Gaza Strip has to be arrested and beaten, do it again and again. And at some point, as Martin Luther King won and Mahatma Gandhi won and Nelson Mandela won, you will win your freedom. Violence is not the answer. This is the answer. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I want to try today to answer a question that I heard asked by David Pakman, a regular contributor to the show and a good friend of mine. Uh, I heard him ask this question during my research for for today's episode, and he starts out by sort of talking about how he feels like he doesn't fit in with any group when it comes to the issue of Israel. Uh, he moved to New York recently. He's been going to a lot of uh, events focusing on Israel, and and he can't find anyone he agrees with. Either the supporters of Israel are sort of like you know, maniacally supportive and thinks that Israel can do no wrong. Uh, there's the Christian fundamentalists who support Israel because they think that, uh, you know, supporting Israel will help Jesus come back. There are the supporters of, of Israel who turn out just to be, you know, anti-Arab and anti-Muslim uh, racists. He doesn't fit in with any of those groups, but he calls himself a supporter of Israel and an, uh, a regular critic of their policies. He thinks that they should exist. But he can't find anyone that he fits in with. So then he goes to the progressive side, and all too often he comes across progressives who just think, well, Israel doesn't deserve to exist. And he's like, well, okay, this isn't a productive conversation. So so he's tried to find someone to have a reasonable conversation with uh, about this issue. And so apparently he, he finds these progressives who seem to be so overly excited about their support of Palestine that they just can't have a reasonable conversation about it. And so then in an interview that I, I uh, listened to prepping for today's show, I heard David ask this question. In fact, I've, I've probably lost some friends over try, trying to have rational conversations about this. When I say, Philippe, well, listen, you know, if, if you're so concerned with what's going on in Israel and Palestine and you claim that anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish sentiment is not a factor, why have I never heard you mention Tibet or Georgia or Syria or Armenia or even Ukraine? There seems to be something that is making people fixate on Israel when there are so many other examples that they could be putting their activism into. Now, to be clear, I am not one of the friends he's referring to. I don't think that he and I have ever even discussed Israel. Um, and, and at first, I didn't have the answer to, to this question. But through the research for this episode, I think I came across a pretty good answer because it bubbled to the surface over and over again, uh, coming from you know lots of multiple sources. Uh, and here are just two examples. This coarsening is deep, and we have enabled it by supporting everything and never holding them to account. And the fact that the United States is actively complicit in keeping the people of Gaza in this uh, uh, basement of humanity is, is shameful. 
So I think that progressive Americans who focus their disapproval on Israel while relatively ignoring other similar circumstances do so because the U.S. puts so much weight on the scale taking Israel's side, and they have for so long. So for many years, we have stood by and supported every decision Israel's made while giving billions in aid money, and that makes us complicit in any actions they decide to take. So when Israel keeps Gaza in what Juan Cole described as the basement of humanity, that reflects back on us. And when they kill hundreds of civilians, that reflects back on us. That is not the case in you know Tibet's conflict with China, Georgia's conflict with Russia, Syrian civil war, conflicts in Armenia and Ukraine, and so on, like uh, David was mentioning. Uh, sort of along these lines, have a listen to what Sam Cedar has to say on the U.S.'s role in the Israel situation, You know, not just this one, but in general. And this is part of a clip I didn't uh, have a chance to include earlier. Because the Bush administration did not function in the way that Israeli politics needed it to, which was to basically be an external check on the worst impulses of the Israeli government and the Israeli people, <clears throat> which it had traditionally been. And it, and it provided for Israel a short circuit. We can't go further into this uh, this war because of, or we cannot go further. Uh, we need to pull back because uh, America is basically telling us to. Because the Bush administration basically encouraged more aggression from the Israelis, I think it fundamentally broke the entire dynamic. And, you know, I've talked in the past sort of metaphorically where the Republican Party allowed its Frankenstein and grew it so much that it lost control of it in some respects because the Israeli government relied on the United States to be a check on its worst impulses. And it wasn't there for eight years. In fact, it was the opposite. Frankenstein is now basically uh, running the streets. So yes, there are many Americans who get their opinions from completely asinine reasoning like anti-Semitism, anti-Arab racism, or just waiting for the second coming of Jesus. But then there are many of us who are concerned, reasonable people who look at the situation and while recognizing the nearly limitless levels of nuance that need to be recognized on both sides, we look at what Israel has decided to do and simply want to say, not in my name. I would love to hear your thoughts on it. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained